Hey, and welcome to the Raising Your Game podcast with me, Lewis Hatchett. On my journey to professional sport, I was always fascinated in what the best in the world were doing and how I could implement it into my own life. I believe that we can all take something from the world of sport that can not only benefit our sporting aspirations and goals, but our day-to-day lives too. I'm going to be speaking to those in and outside the world of sport, exercise and high performance to hear their stories that will hopefully give you insights, advice and ideas for raising your game. In this episode, I speak with Amy Fuller, who's a GB snowboarder in Slopestyle and Big Air, having competed in two Winter Olympics. She also completed two marathons this year, one notably being in North Korea, and we talk about her time running that marathon in a place that is so unknown from the outside world, and she also documented her time out there. We go into how she got into snowboarding in a place like England, where it's not really well known for it. We then go into what it's like doing high-flying tricks, meters in the air, at speed, how you compete in a sport such as this, and what it feels like and what's going through your mind when you're doing all these incredible tricks. Amy's also a trained yoga teacher, and we speak about its importance in her training and competition. She's a really excitable person and presents so well, which probably shows where her career is heading. It's a really great podcast, so let's get into it and enjoy. Amy Fuller. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for doing this on like really short notice. Oh no worries. You've had like a hustling day, so you've been flying around, um, flying around London. That is the life of Amy Fuller. You you will learn to know. Fast paced, fast paced by sport, fast paced by nature. I guess. Generally, everything is done at a hundred miles an hour (laughs) until I hit the yoga mat. Yeah. Well, we'll get onto that. We'll get onto that. So, snowboarding. Let's talk about marathon running. Let's just do that. Let's talk about the fact casual. that you've just <laughs> a casual transition. The fact that you've just uh, done two marathons this year, and we were just talking about how I'd done a marathon. Um, how? Let's go through your first one that you did because that's what is the one that's got the big notoriety, I think. And uh, yeah. explain a little bit about it. One hundred percent. So. 2018, I competed in the Winter Olympics and I've always wanted to do a marathon. It's always been at the back of my mind. And uh, shortly after the Games, uh, April, I was stood on the London Marathon finish line with Tag Heuer. And I was standing there with canapes at hand. There was champagne flowing. And I was like, as much as this is nice, I would much rather be out on that field earning my champagne (laughs) and my canapes. Uh, So I sort of joked with the marketing director of Tagcore and said, yeah, I'd like to run this next year. So um, it was a few months later and she said to me, so uh, Amy, do you want a place in the London Marathon? And I said, can I come back to you in two days? And can I do it with a plus one? The plus one being my mum. Oh, that's awesome. So spoke with my mum and uh, she said, give me a couple of days to think about it. And we decided that if we were to ever endure a marathon, we'd go through the process together. She's got dodgy knee. I've got dodgy feet from snowboarding. So we're like, right, let's put this to bed and tackle this together. Um, It was January. It was a very cold, wet, rainy, miserable day at the end of the month and I had just come back from Colorado, Japan, all very semi-exotic cold locations. However, that had not permitted any time for me to train. 
So I was back here in London and I was out for a run, hit the towpath, ended up in Richmond Park, posted a story on Instagram. Talk about the power of social media. And that story was seen by the Olympic Channel. The Olympic Channel. And I posted, covered in mud, soaking wet, just run 10 miles in Richmond Park. A message came through shortly afterwards and it said, Hey, Amy, see you're training for a marathon. Do you fancy doing another? My instant response was no. And she said, it's in North Korea. (laughs) So 10 minutes later, we were on the phone. Six weeks later, I was on a flight to Beijing. Why had they chosen North Korea? Sorry, like why had they chosen North Korea to begin with? North Korea because we were on our way to document the North Korean marathon and showcase the power of sport and how it can unify the most isolated places. Wow. So they, that, that's what something they were already planning on doing. Like they were already... This is a documentary that was three years in oh the God. making. Yeah. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. They were looking for an Olympic athlete that was capable to essentially front and run a marathon for a documentary. Yeah. So you, you, yeah, you've really struck it at the right time to be training for a marathon at that time uh, with that leading in. Yeah, completely. So uh, essentially I had been putting in a bit of the groundwork and yeah, there was six weeks to go. So it was a case of keeping the training going. That was how long your training was, like six weeks? Yeah, well, six weeks before it. I'd done it, you know, like one or two big runs in January in the mountains before I did the big one here in London. I did one thirteen and a half and an eight and a 10 in amongst travels. Um, So I was slowly increasing the mileage and it was a case of, well, London Marathon is front and centre frame of my mind because for me that was the most important to show up and be accountable and to experience that with my mum. However, there was this giant curveball thrown in the way 10 Mm -hmm. days before London, which was such a fantastic opportunity so it became more about surviving the two and bulletproofing my body in the process to be able to endure two back to back Mm. when I have never ever gone through anything like that in my life what was the longest you'd run before doing a marathon I think Um, when I think I think when I did mine I realized I'd only ever done 8k cricket was we short sprints and and snowboarding is a powerful sport uh you're a fast twitch fiber so what was the longest you've done in ever like in your training can you think uh yeah i actually do remember so i've always enjoyed running um again like you said sort of five to ten k's max um to sort of keep fit on the road essentially you know when you're traveling from contest to contest and Uh, you know you want to find that balance between training travel and also accessibility running something that is so accessible so I highly value it in that sense it's also great for building a strong cardio base which is important in snowboarding Um, 
as we ride for long hours. However, it is a fast twitch fiber sport. So in terms of recovery, I've always done it just to keep that base ticking over. Um, again, 2014, after that Olympics, I did a little more running. The furthest I ran was seven miles two weeks before I entered the Wings for Life World Run, which okay. is a run where uh, you essentially run until the chaser car catches you on a global scale. So it happens all around the world at the same time. So in America, it might be 4 a.m. in the morning. Here in the UK, luckily, it starts at like lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to do well in that because I was against my peers, essentially. So I wanted to showcase <laughs> the, the slight competitiveness that I had, that, that I had the stamina or as I like to say, the minerals to keep going. And I actually ran 13.3 miles accident- accidentally then um, because I just didn't get caught. So I just kept going and going. However, that's the only time that I had ever run that sort of distance. And, and that was the furthest I'd ever gone. So that was four years prior to the marathon. So you've done this training. You got out to North Korea. I've not been to North Korea. I'm sure a lot of people have not been North Korea. What's it like? North Korea is very much like you see on the documentaries. Right, okay. Well, now you can watch our documentary, yeah. Running in North Korea and uh, make your own decision. But I really wanted to go there and see it for myself. That opportunity was presented to me and poverty there is widespread everything is in order for the leader everything they do is for the leader um their sport is essentially fairly well developed it is like a factory system eat sleep repeat but through this they have success and it really was evident there that the only way we could really connect with them on a global scale was through talking about sport because that really is the only tool they have to communicate on a non-political level is you know the olympics and they have had success at the olympics so in that way it really did humanize one of the most strange and backward foreign places cut off that I've ever been. I did, I, that's actually a really true point. I'd never really thought of it, that the fact that you don't really see North Korea sort of in the worlds that we live in, in sport. It's kind of, they're there, but outside of political and sport, there's nothing really I can think of. No, North Korea, I, that's I, it really. I can safely say that you're not going to see a North Korean walking along the high street anywhere in the UK unless they are over for competition. Uh, One story actually our guide told us, which I found really fascinating um, and also really sad is that the North Korean athletes are not treated well. When they travel, they are not treated well. So he used an example. They were in transit to the Commonwealth Games. Uh, They were competing in Glasgow. And they had a layover somewhere in Europe. I won't name the country. And people do not want the North Koreans in their country. So they gave them the shortest possible layover time. So then they were in and out of the country to get on the next flight, to arrive in Glasgow. 
And that layover time was so short. And they said it happens all the time, like half an hour. So they literally have to sprint from flight to flight to make the next flight. Um, And one thing which I thought was really nice was um, he was called Lee. And he said he landed in Glasgow for the Commonwealth Games after his horrendous journey over. And he had no money. He had no foreign currency. Um, And he asked someone where the hotel was. And a Glaswegian fellow picked him up, dropped him off. And he just raved about the, I think, openness and willingness of the Scottish, which is just (laughs) amazing. He said he had a great time. He's like, Scotland is the best place I've ever been. I loved it there. The people were so friendly. And um, I think that's a testament to us as Brits is, uh, you know, we don't always judge a book by, by its cover. And unfortunately, these athletes, you know, are given that, that such a bad rap under the body of the politics of North Korea, but the athletes themselves, you know, they're just there to compete. Mm. They're just doing their thing. What they do, yeah, like like we do, turn yeah. up and get the job done, right? Yeah. So you ran. What was the um, the marathon? Didn't just have uh, wasn't just you and everyone else being North Korean. There was no. lot. There was foreigners in there. That's open to foreign. Yeah, it's the, actually the biggest week in North Korean tourism. So I believe there were between 900 to 1,300 people over for the marathon. They put a time limit on the marathon of four and a half hours the night before, which meant a lot of people you dropped. You didn't know that going into it? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that meant that uh, the field size was cut in half and a lot of people dropped down to the half marathon. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Um, it was an out-and-back marathon. So at six and a half miles, you can imagine... Everyone turned and then there were about 400 of us out on the streets for the remaining 26.2 miles. So they were uh, big, empty, lonely and very straight roads. Did you did you find anyone because, well, you then ran the London Marathon later on. I ran it as well. And you find people on the run, don't you? You kind of find people that are. You're like, I'm going to stay with that person. I'm going to be with them. And I, I hope I see them in 26 miles sort of thing. And Or you find someone that's around yeah. your pace. And it's it's like a bit of a social thing. Eventually, well, say social, but like you have that community sort of around you, I guess. In yeah, a small, you kind of get to recognize everyone. Um, I definitely got that sense when I did London as well. You mm. sort of find your pack and you're like, oh, give them a nod, give them a smile. And then you'll drop back. But then they'll they'll drop back and you sort of constantly like uh it's like a friendly jostle between back and forwards and you kind of like look at each other and you're like hey are you good you good you know like you say there's that real sense of community whereas in north korea it was more like there is one person i can see him in the distance i'm gonna pick him off <laughs> picked him off he's gone he stopped <laughs> yeah, there wasn't such a sense of community however I was really, really lucky and thankful within the first 10 minutes. Kind of me being me, I like started chatting to people and I made friends with an Irish guy and his name was Kieran. And I think if it wasn't for Kieran, I would have really, really struggled in those times of darkness where my feet felt like cement at 20 miles, Mm. Um, you know, and he had gels and all the proper kit, which... I didn't have, I just turned up and I think sometimes you're often better at blind <laughs> going going into those things, you know, like kind of unaware of the hurdles you may 
you may come across and then you just find them along your journey, which I certainly did. Um, but when I look back at it, I'm just so thankful that, you know, without sounding like super cliche, but the whole experience was a really positive one for me because I am and was just so thankful that my body could actually carry me over that distance. Mm. Like it's phenomenal. A marathon is so far. So yeah, big ups and respect to everyone who runs, you know, it's, it's an amazing tool and yeah, we're so lucky to be able to move. So you've got to make the most of it. And then no rest for the wicked. Cause then 10 days later you're doing the London marathon. Yeah. Saying that contradicting myself at like 20 <laughs> miles. I was thinking, God, I've got to run. I've got, I've got to do this again in like, well, you, you were already thinking forward. You were like, Oh my God. I yeah. But then I was like, one. I kept saying to myself, just forget about that and focus on the right here right now. You know, you can put all the precautions and the, things that you need to do in place you've got 10 days so just was anything you did in particular that got you ready for that next race yeah actually randomly um i as soon as i finished the marathon i'm not gonna lie i felt pretty whack like stomach up the left um but we all like went straight for lunch (laughs) (laughs) and then i actually went and got in the sauna um because I was more worried about not being able to move well like the following day. And I find for me, like the sauna is like the cheating way of finding that extra length in your muscles, mm-hmm. especially when they've really endured something. So I actually just went and sat in the sauna. Uh, I drank loads of water and I just stretched in the sauna. Um, and there was a strange swimming pool, which I sort of plodded around in but i i really put put it down to the heat in my muscles and yeah and finding that length again after they'd been through such a well, range there's a huge amount of detoxifying that goes on when you're in a sauna as well so like that lactic acid that gets rid of like because it is that day after a, after a marathon is it's yeah. hard if you've not done one like it is hard it's it's hits you it's like yeah. a train so yeah you've done done well to get rid of that um so the the documentary running in north korea that's on olympic channel right now but maybe yeah. when this podcast goes out as well it might not still be on there so no do you know, oh, it will always it be will. on there. oh it's, awesome it's free to watch you can literally go on google tap in running in north korea and it will take you straight to the olympic channel it's available in all of the languages yeah, definitely <laughs> all of the subtitles it. um and it's free to watch so yeah hit it up and let me know what you think yeah. uh, we've had some amazing feedback so far and it really is a powerful insight and into it's such the a country thing to do as well. And also like, you know, if you fancy running an obscure marathon, <laughs> that's the <laughs> it's one. It's there for the taking, that, that's for sure. That's the one. Right, so let's let's go to actually snowboarding. So, you're a professional snowboarder and there's not much snow going on in England. So, how the hell did you 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 were born in London, weren't you? Farm Farnborough. Uh, yeah, so uh, Farnborough, Kent, so sort of Bromley. Yeah. I believe that's considered part of London yeah. these days. Um, not many mountains around there. There's not so many mountains, but no. there was a very good dry slope, Bromley Dry Ski Centre, shout out. Um, so is that how you got into it? That's where it started? Started with skiing, age four, motocross, age four. Combine the two, you've got, yes, oh, oh sorry, also gymnastics, age 10 to 12. Um, you've got essentially the perfect combination of skill sets, reading lines and transitions in a track from motocross, 
and then gymnastics, air awareness, ability, stability and control that you learn through gymnastics. Um, I then lived in the States for three and a half years when I was 12 and lived in Virginia and I went snowboarding with some friends from school. Uh, it was about an hour and a half, hour and a half away in Pennsylvania and I absolutely fell in love with the process and spent the majority of my days at school dreaming about the next possibility to escape to Pennsylvania to go snowboarding for a day. <laughs> so over the period of three and a half years, I clocked up a few days here and there. And in 2003, I got noticed on en route back to moving back to the UK. And that was by my first sponsor, Roxy. So 16 plus 12 will give you a clue how old I am. Um, and that's how long I've been riding for Roxy. So it's wow, that's, pretty magic. That's early yeah. doors that they've found you. And it is and it isn't. You okay. know, you've got 12-year-olds now doing back double 1260s. Wow. So um, whew, yeah. times have changed for sure. Um, and I was so thankful to um, have that opportunity. And it was at age 16. I then joined the GB Junior team um, after my first Roxy camp managed to squidge through my A-levels and as soon as I finished my A-levels, I just pursued my dream, which was becoming a professional rider. Was the Olympics on the radar like round 16? No. So with Roxy? Um, the Olympics wasn't really an option back then. Um, Slopestyle got introduced into the 2014 Winter Olympics. So I finished school in 2009 and it was announced in 2012. So for me... The goal was just X Games and World Champs. And, you know, there's a huge tour outside of the Olympics within snowboarding. But I suppose you could say it's more American-based. So, um, you know, my initial dream was to ride at the X Games, which I did. Um, was the first woman to land double in competition in 2012. And then, yeah, I endured my first Olympics in 2014. So it's been... Bit of a roller coaster. In 2014, there were 24 girls. And then in 2018, there were 32 girls and the inclusion of Big Air. So, yeah, the sport's growing and it's in a really, really exciting place. So, you're because there's not access to that sort of training in England, where are you training most of the time? Um, abroad, yeah. You, yeah. Ha you have to go abroad. Um, What's that like? The coming to and from, apart from, I imagine yeah, it's quite it was, nice, like going out and. Yeah. Um, at the start, it's just amazing because yeah. the, the trips are few and far between, uh, especially 16 to 18 because I was still at school. Um, and then I went full-time when I left school. And I would say it's only like the last few years it's definitely got harder, you know, um, you know juggling adult life, so to speak, um, bills and, you know, rent and mortgages. And, um, you know, it's for me, it's been really important to have a base in the UK to have that stability and to have that peace of serenity because living out of a suitcase is not as glamorous as it sounds um but oh man I I just I cannot even say how thankful I am for the doors snowboarding has opened and the places mm. I've gone you know like snowboarding in Australia it's just just crazy like you know no one in my family's even been to australia so 
it was somewhere I never even thought I would have the opportunity to go. And I've been like five times, yeah, you know, New Zealand, Japan, China. It's, it's, it's madness. It's crazy where sport can take you. I was going to say, that's the beauty. I think that's just the beauty of sport as well, isn't it? It's just yeah. so cool that you realize how grateful you are of being able to see the world when some people just don't even have that opportunity and how far it can take you. I think you take, do you feel like you ever took it for granted? I know I, there's probably moments where I, I think I did some, some points. I think, um there was a phase especially like in the in the tougher times of my career when you're saddled through injury which of course is a part of any professional's athlete's career um you know you sort of going there and you get the job done and it's kind of about surviving and battling through for example um in the process of qualifying for the 2018 games I actually had my best season to date in terms of like focus and mental application to the qualifying process. But I also had um, a really annoying injury. I had a grade two on my lateral ligament in my ankle. Um, and I had five contests back to back and they were really crucial for me. And I had to compete two weeks after the injury. I could, I could walk, but I couldn't really put any force to it. And just the pressure of the tape alone like threw me into this like shock of yeah like like tears I couldn't even control it it was that really sharp pain and that six week block for me was so crucial and there was so much pressure on me to deliver that it wasn't about enjoying each country it was about turning up and delivering so you go through phases um you know we had had like five contests in five different countries and when you've got an injury or something like that it, it's about survival but then when there's a bit more of a break and you've got some training it's something I do now and and started to do once I'd sort of been through that intensive block is to to find the time to enjoy each country so you've got a contest in northern China okay I'm gonna fly in a you know day and a half early I'm gonna acclimatize and I'm going to go check out the Great Wall of China because yeah. why not? Whereas when I, when I was a bit younger, it was more a case of flying in, landing, going straight to the venue, competing and leaving. And Blinkers I think, are on. Yeah. You're, you're in, you're but as you get a bit mode. older, it's like, wow, like this is amazing. I'm here. I'm here to do a job. I'm here to do something I love. And, you know, there's, there's let's make the most of this because it's not going to last forever, you know? Mm. Yeah. It's the, um, when you... So you you did slope start and then big air, which yeah. is like big tricks. Yeah. Um. And and I met your coach, uh, Rich Hosseini, so I know him locally, and he had spoken about the sort of you guys get it like addicted to these things because of the rush it gives you and yeah. the flow state that you get in as well. Um, yeah. But that doesn't just you don't just turn up for your first ever slope and it, and you're hitting thirty feet in the air or or plus and and you're not. That's something that does doesn't happen. You build it up over time. I kind of want to find out a little bit from it, if you can explain it what it's like being up there in the air, twisting and yeah. So I'd say you know there's two ways you can look at it. You know you're either up there and you're nervous and you're clinging on to that positive mindset and that thought that you're going to get the trick done and you're going to land it right. Or you're up there and you're oozing with confidence and everything flows. It's like it's like a puzzle and you piece it together as you go. But 
it's a puzzle that you don't have to think about because it kind of works. Is that because of your training? So your training has been a part of putting that puzzle together. Yeah. So, you know, like on the in run. Okay. So I'll take you through a trick. Um, We're going to do a cab double, which is the best trick that I can do. So you're riding in. I can visualize it now. My eyes are closed, but they're not. So I'm going in. (laughs) I drop in. I'm going toes. Heels. Toes to flat base. And it's in that transition, and you know straight away if you've got it right or wrong. You're mm. on the lip of the takeoff, and you wait, wait, and then you pop. If you pop at the wrong time, it's a disaster. So explain what a pop is. Pop is the time at which you drive or accelerate your back foot through your snowboard to create that lift. So it's like okay. the snap. Okay. It's the initiation process and if you get the timing wrong i mean let's not even go there it's yeah. it's a panic it's it's everything that everything that you don't think about but it becomes all about survival and how you can get your feet back under you so it's sheer panic that's if you're getting it wrong if you get it right and you get the pop right it's like you're floating through the air it's magic you can see everything everything's almost like slow motion you reach for the grab you tweak it which is our way of like introducing style and it's like one two spot the ground stomp and it's like it's like a well-oiled machine when it goes right i kind of feel like it's 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 really sort of um like i'm thinking like film stuff in my head where you where because when you watch it on TV, it's seconds you're in the air. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like their sounds. Like it's like pop, stomp. Yeah, okay. So it's like it's like rhythmic in a sense. Like if you're on top of your game and you know how the puzzle fits together, it's it's almost like a beat, but it's, it's not because I'm visual. So it's like pop, flip, flip, stomp. So if even the in run goes wrong and you go, so you go too long on one edge. Okay, gotcha. You might have lost the speed because all of those are factors. The speed has to be right. If you're going too fast, you're going to go too far. If you're going too slow, you're not going to have the right height or distance and then you can land on the deck, which would be like. Yeah, yeah. So is that correctable though? Like, couldn't you correct that to... Or is competing in the Olympics when you're at the top and you're about to go, is it you are doing, you've done all your training and you... Oh, it can you, go tits up you, still. You start and, and it, yeah, and it goes tits up. But if you're just going there for that perfect ride and you get it and you nail it, or can you still win if you don't nail it? Does that, does that make sense? Um, so like if you get it if you get it wrong can you correct it enough to do the trick well enough yeah to, to do depends well? what the trick is okay so there's ways which we can eject we call it or you can tuck up make yourself smaller to spin faster um you know at the level we're at it's you know that it goes wrong probably like 10 percent of the time uh you know like wrong wrong whereas it goes right the takeoff 90% of the time um, and there's minor tweaks that you would change to make it go right so you land so essentially you want to be performing a run which you can do 
easily where you're in that flow state and you're essentially not really thinking about it. It's just a rhythm, a rhythm that you automatically do. But when it's a newer trick, so it's higher up in that skill set and you're tapping into this new realm, then obviously that's when things can go wrong because it's it's not been practiced. And, you know, it is one of those skills where practice is essential because otherwise there's so many contributing factors like speed, the size of the jump, the conditions, whether it's icy or whether someone's gone before you and they've made a mark in the jump and you don't like it. So you want to, when you're competing, you want to be performing tricks that are, you know, within that safe realm. And then on your second run, you can up the gears and go for something that's a little higher up in the bag of tricks. And that flow that you're getting when you're up there, is it addictive? Is it the landing's addictive? That's really? what's addictive. It's like because you got it right, boom, <laughs> and it you know like you come down and it's still like a quite a heavy impact, but it's like an impact where you're like, boom, I'm a boss. Like when it goes right, you're got like, it right. Yes, it. <laughs> it's it's so good. It's so good. You know, and especially when you land like with equal weight distribution with each feet, like you know you can land. You know, we learn to land in various different ways, you know, like a bit heavy on the tail or a bit heavy on your heels or a bit heavy on your toes. But when you land like bang, weight central in the middle of your board, you're like, boom, that was that was the one. Yeah. Stomped. So you feel like before you've even seen anything, you go, oh, I got it. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. It. Like the minute you leave, leave the lip, you know, you know, if not, it's a scrabble. It's like putting the pieces <laughs> of the puzzle back together to try and land on your feet. But um you know, obviously we 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 don't do stuff that we can't do. You yeah. know, it's it's well practiced and it's a skill that's acquired over years and years. So do you feel that that once you finish, you know, I imagine you've got this incredible buzz, like you're buzzing from it. Um, does it take a while to come down from that? Or do you just want to go again? Um it depends, you know, contest days versus filming days. Um, you know, when you're filming that's another side of snowboarding, which Explain I'm doing that. a bit what do you, more. What do you mean by filming? Uh, so backcountry, so off-piste, big mountain riding. Okay. Um, you know, you go out there to get the shot and you go out and if you nail it first go, you're like, okay, let's move on. On to the next one. Yeah. Job done, essentially. Yeah. Um, but when you're in a park competitive environment, it's about consistency. So, you know, you might have landed a new trick once but once isn't enough to perfect it on the world stage mm. you've got to keep going and that's quite hard because you land it once you're like sweet done it woo! but then you're like oh god really to to make this trick more accessible i need to keep doing it but the adrenaline rush you get from doing one trick is so much it like it can wipe you for you know like a couple of hours without you even realizing you know like your your legs are shaking and you're out of breath and you know like the whole mental element of it consumes you yeah um so it's it's then how you manage that and and attack it again and And keep going and you'd uh, you're a qualified yoga teacher yeah and and you've been doing it for a while how long you been doing yoga for um so probably since like 2015-16 so do you feel that's helped you sort of down regulate yourself a bit and, and oh 100% it is uh, I was literally talking about this 
yesterday it has been the bolt hold of the last few years of my career in holding not only my body but my mind together it's like the one place where I feel like I can go and truly switch off or switch on if there's something Mm -hmm. on snow that needs to be worked on I can also use that time as sort of mental practice to think through the motions and I feel like yoga's helped me progress with my own movement to a point that it has assisted me through dark times of injury and also avoiding injury um yeah it's magic yeah I mean well it's it's, it's helped me it's helped a lot of people um what's uh that's so interesting that stuff about flying upside down and um I just can't imagine because I just literally I I know it takes time to build to that level, but I've just no I can't, I can't even consider it in my mind. Like I, you look at heights off like a diving board and things like that. Some people get real queasy, but you're throwing yourself in at its speed and it's just like literally insane. Yeah, it's, um, I, I I look at it and I'm like, wow, it's it's crazy, you yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you're also into presenting as well. So yep. uh, you're going to be in and around the media a lot more now as well. And people are going to be looking out for you. Yeah, most definitely. I've got um, a few exciting things coming up here and there. I did. Um, I started off last season with some work with Rebel TV. I'm going to be doing more with them this year. Okay. And yeah, there's a few other various things in the mix. Yeah. I've got some stuff with Chelsea Football Club and BT Sport, cool. which I'm really excited about. Um supporting the women's game so yeah. that's really exciting actually uh when i got my jersey sorted today got your boots. after um the summer of sport uh and the lioness's success i got heavily involved in that and absolutely loved it and yeah i'm essentially looking for my next big documentary project because i just absolutely loved that wholesome experience of um yeah running in North Korea it was crazy and I'm looking for my next kick like that that's wicked where's the best place people to find you the best place people can find me is probably on Instagram hey these days so it's Amy A-I-M-E-E underscore Fuller Um, I've also got a website and then I do have my own fitness series on YouTube called Fuller Fitness so we've got all sorts of mobility we've got um, calisthenic style body weight movement and um, I'm only going to be adding to that over the next few months so do check it out amazing Amy thank you so much for your time today it's it's been awesome like something I definitely wanted to hear about the what you do um but no thank Thank you so much thank you so much for having me really appreciate it (laughs) cheers thank you thanks again for listening to the raising your game podcast you can support this podcast in many ways by leaving a review sharing it on your social media or by telling a friend if you would like to raise your own game in your sport and exercise you can sign up to simple and practical online classes with me at thesportyogi.com Using methods of yoga-inspired movement, performance breathwork, mindset, meditation, and more to prepare, perform, and recover better for sport and life. You can also follow on Instagram and Facebook at The Sport Yogi. But thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again soon.